Erica Roebuck's heart-stopping new World War II drama, Sisters of Night and Fog, was named a most anticipated book of 2022 by numerous book sites, BuzzFeed and BookBub included. It's an undercover spy story based on the true lives of two very different women with a common cause. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, international best-selling author Erica Roebuck talks about her latest spellbinder based on the extraordinary stories of an American socialite and a British secret agent who'd never met before the war but whose stunning acts of courage collide in the darkest hours of World War II. We've got our usual free book offer, a small town first in series romance from Mary Crawford called Love is More Than Skin Deep, and we're introducing Encore, an exciting new feature, interviews with our favourite authors, people who've been on the podcast before, coming back to talk about their latest releases in a shorter version of Binge Reading, around about 20 minutes. Our very first guest on Encore is Deborah Chalinor, a top-selling New Zealand historical fiction author with her latest book called The Leonard Sisters, a story about two sisters, surprise, surprise, and the Vietnam War years of the late 60s. It will be previewed on Binge Reading on Patreon as exclusive content for two weeks and then go on the free-to-air podcast after that. We'll start with one a month and see how we go. You can support the podcast on Patreon and get that exclusive bonus content, including now Encore, at patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. Links to all of the information we mentioned in this episode can be found on the Joys of Binge Reading website. But now, enough of the housekeeping. Here's Erica. Hello there, Erica, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Erica. You've made a career out of writing historical fiction about real-life people, but your latest two books are spy stories set in World War II, and we're particularly focusing on the most recent one today, Sisters of Night and Fog. Now, in German, that phrase has a particular um, resonance. Tell us a bit about the title and how it relates to the story. Yes, I mean, for the longest time, the book was called A Woman's War, but we got some feedback internally that because that book was so broad, it could fit any book, that title, excuse me. And um, they wanted something to be very specific. And it was my editor who was speaking to me about the Night and Fog program, which was Hitler's repulsive decree to make resistors of Germany disappear. And it was that that ultimately rose to the top because that's exactly what happened at Ravensbrück concentration camp. He made the women resistors disappear. Yeah. And it was a specific Nazi program, wasn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. It encompassed many, many areas, but specifically for this book, that's what it did. Yeah. You've joined two real life stories together, American socialite Virginia Delbert Lake and British agent Violette Zabo. They were both in behind enemy lines, but in rather different circumstances, and they had very different 
personalities, and their lives did cross later in their careers. But one of them was determined from the start to fight the Nazis. The other one at the beginning was just hoping to have a quiet war and stay out of trouble. Tell us a bit about your two main characters. Yes, well, I discovered them when I was researching my previous spy novel, The Invisible Woman, which was about American Virginia Hall, who was an Allied spy. And these women, many women came on my radar, but I was very drawn to Virginia Roush Dalbert Lake because she was also an American named Virginia, but also because she was a teacher. She grew up in Florida and I have family in Florida and I was a teacher I still always teach in some capacity. And so I felt like she, I felt she was very relatable because she was an everyday person and she wanted to keep her head down and stay safe, but gradually was drawn into something much bigger than she was. And she rose to the occasion. So I thought I had this wonderful novel that I would write about Virginia, Dalbert Lake, and I started moving along. And as I was doing so, this other woman, Vila Jabo, the polar opposite of Virginia. So she was very young, impetuous, feisty, quite a rebel, had five brothers. She was always beating up and fighting and learning how to shoot what we would have called a tomboy when I was growing up, but also with a real side of glamour. She wanted to enter the war later because her husband died and um, he died in a battle in North Africa and she wanted vengeance. And a lot of her story, I did not find relatable. And so I kept putting her to the side, but I ended up having many, many dreams about her. And over the course of the dreams, I felt like she was urging me to put me in the story. And it wasn't until I realized that her path physically crossed with Virginia Lakes in Ravensbrück concentration camp. Um, when Virginia was describing a young woman who was a leader in their group, who helped keep morale up, who distracted guards so they wouldn't hurt people. And it was Violet. And so I knew that I had to do it. And then I had one final dream where, where Violet told me I had to do it. So I did. <laughs> Amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about those dreams? How did they come to you? Well, you know, writing for me is very much, it's practical and in one sense and research oriented, but on the other side, it's mystical. And so I have these impulses, you know, I will, I'll go on a historic house tour, visit a place, do an interview. And I start to get these feelings. It's almost like falling in love where you're really drawn to something and you want to read about it and write about it. And when that starts to happen, I really pay attention to the things that cross my path. And that's very often when I start having dreams and it helps me choose my subject matter quite a bit, actually. I do try to balance it with a more practical side, but those pieces are very affirming along the way. Fantastic. And, and has it happened with other books? It has, yes. Uh, most notably with Hemingway's Girl. Hemingway came to me and said I had to write a book about him in Key West because he'd become irrelevant. Oh, that's wonderful. We'll talk about that later. It's going, they've got, you've got so many fabulous books that we won't have time to go into all of them in detail, but Hemingway, Hemingway is one that I am very interested in because I've done interviews with people who've done stories about the other two wives as well. So. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he has a lot of material to work with. That's right. And Pauline comes out rather sympathetically in that story because she really does the dirty on Hadley, the first wife. But well, that's how <laughs> it comes out of that story. I'm not sure if that's what really happened. But anyway, getting back to Night and Fog, it was named the most anticipated book of 2022 by quite a number of significant websites, including BookBub. And it's already got starred reviews from places like Publishers Weeks. It's set to be another really 
best-selling book. Does it put a bit of extra pressure on you when that happens, when you're writing the most anticipated book? Well, it does. It does in the sense that when I'm looking for new material, I want something that's going to interest the readership that I've built, but also take everyone in a new direction so I can stay engaged, so the reader can stay engaged. So that's where I find the biggest challenge is sort of marrying all of the different kinds of things and all of my passions I've been writing about into the next book. And with this one, I've written two books set during World War II. And, you know, emotionally, it really puts the writer through the ringer, puts the reader through the ringer. And I'd like to move in a different direction. But at the same time, you know, I have such a so much depth of research in that time now. So it's it's that's where the struggle is for me. Yes. Yeah. The underground networks in France had a lot of trouble with infiltration. And in both of your stories, this these two World War II books, that becomes relevant to the story. And they were desperately trying to maintain the security of the networks. I mean, Virginia's story where she's got a French husband who she's really committed to staying with. So she doesn't fly back to USA and just find a peaceful haven. She stays there at her side. But when you're in that circumstance of having a village and they're just quietly trying to help resistors or, in their case, allied pilots that are getting back to fight through it via Spain, they've got to look at everybody around them as being potential um, betrayers mm-hmm. or traitors. And Violet did try and tell her headquarters in London about the fact that she was in Ravensbrook with other agents. It's mm-hmm. not entirely clear if that message ever got through or whether they just couldn't do anything about it. Yes, there's conflicting stories about it. I don't know that it got through in time and everything was happening very quickly at the end there. So I don't think that was able to be acted upon, unfortunately, not until some of the men were released from Buchenwald and different places that it really got back there. But there were still a lot of unknowns. It was behind curtains quite a bit. So it it didn't get there in time. You just love the thought that we were going to have some sort of, you know, rescue mission there, <laughs> rewrite the story. Yeah. I know. And and the hope that the women had, and, and particularly with Vila, she was convinced that there would be SOE agents parachuting from the sky to whisk them away and defeat the, the bad guys. And I just, um, her capacity for hope, the wish to constantly fight to be well, to be free. It was very inspiring. Also somewhat sad sometimes, but very inspiring. Yes. And just on that topic of betrayal, I think that she was the one who was, was it her or was it um, in in um, the other book, convinced that there was a traitor at SOE headquarters. And it seems as if that was the case. Yeah, so Violet started to become paranoid about that. And in some of her interrogations, the Nazis indicated that they were getting information from someone, from a source there. And, you know, much of a lot of the files from the SOE were burned very shortly after the war. It was supposedly, you know, just a random fire, but it was probably arson. And there were a couple of suspects that I do outline in the back of the book. I usually try to include an author's note with any further reading or anything that I chose to fictionalize that, you know, outside of history for whatever reason. I do try to put in a pretty healthy author's note because so many there's so many questions at the end about the real people. Yeah. And it seemed to me, it struck me, I read that author's note, one of those names was also the person who enlisted Virginia Lake in um, The Invisible Woman, wasn't he? So there's quite a, a sort of weird and almost creepy link there. Yes, yes. And there were, there were so many links and intersections that I didn't even know about. You know, one of the 
the the trains that was taking the agents out had some of the agents from the from the previous novel from Virginia Hall's work. One of Violet's partners, Clement, was one of the men that Virginia Hall was able to get out of jail in Lyon. And so there were all these intersecting stories. It was yeah. very connected. Yeah, that's amazing. Historical fiction, we move on quite nicely to asking that question about the intersection of real life and fiction. Obviously, there are some areas where you you probably must fictionalise. These aren't non-fiction biographies. But how Mm -hmm. do you find your way through that maze of real life and fiction? Well, that's because what you said, I'm not a biographer, so I have to look for the story elements that are going to lead to, you know, a character with a strong character arc, a climax, rising action, falling action. And I try to pinpoint an event or series of events that are just really compelling in the life of these women and men. And what I, I basically do is read every little thing I can get my hands on. And as I, throughout the process, that event, the pivotal event rises up, and then I'm able to build the story around that. And then what I do is I make a timeline of everything that happened truly in history. And then I start character lists. And in these cases, so many of the characters were operating in clandestine roles, spies, as resistors. So it was very difficult to nail them. And but Once I would find someone and realize, oh, this code name is this real person, make those connections. I knew I had a fully fleshed out character. So the characters that rise to the top are the ones I know the most about. Occasionally, there are just so many characters in a network. It would be taxing for the reader, you know, to go from safe house to safe house, family to family. So whenever I do combine, merge, or choose one, if there might be three, I make a note of that. But I do try to remain as faithful to the true history as possible. Of course, I can't know what they say, so the dialogue is fictionalized, but I've read so much and I've done so much research, I think I have a pretty good idea of what they might have said to each other. Yeah. In The Invisible Woman, you mentioned interviews around that, that you got to meet one of Virginia's nieces and that that helped to really flesh out for you what Virginia might have been like. And I guess one of the things you're doing is giving them an emotional narrative. You're imagining what they would be feeling at various times. Now, finding someone like a niece probably helped with that a lot. Tell us about that meeting. Yes. um, Well, for Virginia Hall, which was for the Invisible Woman, her niece lives in Baltimore, Maryland, and I live very nearby that. So I was able to go into a series of lunches with her. And the first time I visited her house, she brought out an enormous box of photographs of her aunt of Virginia Hall, but from childhood until she was an old woman. And these are pictures that weren't anywhere. They weren't in any biography that I'd seen. So just even having access to those really started to color in the pencil sketches that I had come with. But just how she spoke about her aunt, the things that she would say, her pet name, she called her Dindy, which is funny because Virginia Hall was sort of a woman of steel. It's it's amusing to have that someone had a pet name for her. But she was a little bit harder for me to connect with. So that was what really did it for me. The other women, Virginia Lake and Vila Jabo and Sisters of Night and Fog, were far more warm, relatable, and open. So a lot of the interviews really did reveal quite a bit. But in that case, one of the children of one of the women, I was able to do phone interviews with. And that, again, it just, it really brought her to life for me. So it was, it was a real blessing to be able to speak to that, that child. Fantastic. Are you able to say whose child that was? Well, if I do, it's a little bit of a spoiler. So I'll just tell you. Oh, yes, of course. Because, yeah, yeah, I understand. Mm -hmm. The Invisible Woman, Virginia Hall, also had an amazing story because 
she was the least likely person to be able to carry out the things that she did because she had had a, a serious injury. Tell us about just where she started from. Well, so Virginia Hall grew up in Maryland and they had her family lived in the city of Baltimore, but in the summers they had a country house where she learned to do her hiking, canoeing um, and shooting. And she had her father's shotgun when she was stationed in Turkey in Izmir at the time and was out hunting with friends and just wasn't careful. And she hopped over a fence while her gun was locked and loaded and accidentally shot off her foot, which resulted in her ending up with a partial amputation and then eventually a prosthetic leg that she named Cuthbert. And what she endured during that time, she was actually, when she was in the hospital in Turkey, she was going to kill herself because Virginia Hall was the captain of every team, the editor of every paper, the lead of every play. She did whatever she wanted. She went wherever she wanted. And her athleticism was a huge part of who she was. And she thought that her life was over when that happened. But she had a mystical vision of her dad, some kind of a dream or vision. Her father had died a few years earlier. And he told her that was not who she was. It was not what she was made for and that she needed to press on. And so she did. And I really, I really believe, you know, in hindsight, everything she endured and the stubbornness and the will to learn how to use a very clunky prosthetic so well that many people didn't even know she had it after a certain amount of time. It really gave her the determination that she needed to go on to fight Nazis and quite literally scale mountains. So, yeah. So she became Marie of Lyon and she was the bane of the Nazis' existence, really, wasn't she? Um, yes. So she's operating behind enemy lines. She's got this prosthetic foot. It's just unbelievable when you try and grasp it. I mean, I know that I would just consider it definitely an excuse to not have to get so engaged. I know, oh, same. I, the, the courage of all these women, you know, for me, I feel like if I see the ball of fire, I'm going to run in the other direction. So many of these women are wired to run toward it to see what they can do to help. <laughs> so yes. it's just fascinating study to me. Yeah. Perhaps we could just move on to talk a little about some of your other books. They were sure. The thing that distinguishes them a bit from these books, and you've made that point, is that these women were very much the agents of their own lives. Some of the previous women you've written about were famous because they were married to famous men, and a lot of those were literary men. And that's people like Ernest Hemingway's second wife, Pauline, and that's Hemingway's girl. And you also have done books on Zelda Fitzgerald, mm. Scott Fitzgerald's wife, and Nathaniel Hawthorne's wife. So tell us a bit about these women who lived in the shades of their very famous husbands. And what was it like writing about them? Well, it all started with a tour through the house in Key West, Florida of Hemingway's home and grounds. We were visiting my husband's cousin in the Coast Guard down there. And I just happened to do the side trip because I've loved the work of Ernest Hemingway for a long time. I took a class in college and I fell in love. I think you either love him or you hate him in real life or in literature. And I love him up against my better judgment. And um, <laughs> we went on that house tour. I could so vividly see everything happening in the 1930s. It was like a movie playing before my eyes. And then that's when I came home and had the dream about him. So for that, I was I was really writing about a time and a place that was a place of great fascination to me and a person. And then it really, it, it went from there. So as I'm researching the Hemingways, I came across a lot about the Fitzgeralds. And then the Fitzgeralds were in Baltimore for a time. And of course, as I mentioned, I live near Baltimore. So then I, I moved to that part of their lives. And so one of them sort of led to the other. And I, I was writing about women in the shadows of men for quite a while. And I started 
to write another one of those books. I was writing about Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, his wife, Florence. And there was a bit of a love triangle with Oscar Wilde, interestingly enough. And um, it wasn't getting picked up. Nobody wanted it. And an editor finally pulled me aside and she said, we don't want, the market does not want any more Mrs. Books at the moment. We want a book about a woman who's strong in her own right. And I thought that was really interesting and valuable advice. And that was around the time I really started to shift my focus to these other women from history who did things besides being the wife of a famous writer <laughs> and even, <laughs> even inspiring them or inspiring the work. But, and that's when I found Virginia Hall. And so, and then just finding her, of course, led to these other women. So it opened up a whole new direction for me. And I'm still exploring those shadows of history, um, but just in a different way. Yeah, I'm interested in, in your dream, why did Hemingway particularly seem to want you to do the book? Well, I was working on a follow-up to a book I'd self-published, but I kept reading things about Key West in the 30s. So I was having an internal struggle about, do I continue writing the sequel to a book that really nobody cares about, or do I shift focus to something that's more commercial? And that's when I had the dream. So I, you know, I don't think Ernest Hemingway picked me out of all the millions of writers, but <laughs> I was personally trying to decide between two books and, and I had a dream and he helped me decide in the dream. Oh, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. We're taking a quick break and we'll be back with Erica Roebuck shortly. Sadie's Vow, a historical mystery with a heart of romance, is Jenny Wheeler's latest book, launching this week at a special launch price of 99 cents in all ebook stores. Newly minted Austrian Count meets a mysterious woman on a train and is drawn into a deadly conflict with San Francisco gangs. It's available today at Jenny's book site, jennywheeler.biz, B-I-Z, or all digital bookstores. And now we're back with Erica Roebuck. Why do you think that World War II fiction is so incredibly popular at the moment? And has it got some resonance with us as 21st century readers? Oh, yes. And oh, just over the past two months, my answer to this has, has changed, obviously, dramatically. But it's always going to be relevant because the stakes are high and there are, it was a world war. So every single corner of the world that you turn to, there was a different battle being fought in a different way. And because so many files are, it's been more than 75 years, so files are being declassified. We're learning so much about these about these women and men, and uh, many many of them have died or are dying, and so their children now can talk about their stories, where before a lot of the people didn't want to talk about it. So that's going on on one side. Also, I think until recently, it was the last cut and dry, clear cut, good guys, bad guys kind of thing. So everybody was sort of rooting against the not, well, everybody of good faith was certainly rooting against Nazis and, and, and trying to fight that. So I think that's why it makes such compelling and interesting fiction. And readers want to say, what would I do? What would I do? And it really, it really puts that in there, stories of great heroism. And then yeah. of course, over the last two months, we see that it's sadly relevant because of what's going on in Ukraine and because just, you know, history since the dawn of time, we, we're on this wheel and we can't get off it. So there's always going to be these stories of war, but where the stories of war, then there are stories of courage. So yeah. they inspire us. Yeah. Look, we're coming to the end of our time together. So turning to Erica as reader, we always like to ask our authors about their own reading because the binge reading podcast is a little bit about books we might like to 
take on after the show. And I often like, as with you, to have multi-published authors so that if they discover one they like, they can go back and read the whole backlist. I imagine you've been a passionate reader your whole life from the way that you talk. Tell us about your own reading tastes and what you'd recommend right now. Sure. I, I'm an avid reader. I'm usually reading about a dozen books on an obscure uh, topic that I'm researching at one time. And then I'm always reading a spiritual book and then I'm reading for fun for fiction and then I'm reading blurbs. So I am, I'm reading constantly. Some of my recent favorites, I just, I have my list ready to go because I just finished The Forest of Vanishing Stars by Kristen Harmel, which is a World War II novel set. It's almost like a Hunger Games survival story in the wilds of Poland Germany. Um, and it is, it's such an interesting, almost mystical take on a young woman in World War II. Absolutely astonishing story. Another World War II is The Last Checkmate by Gabriella Saab, which is set in Auschwitz when a young woman is forced to play chess with a Nazi. And it is, it's powerful and moving, but even though it's set in a concentration camp, I don't want readers to say, oh, I don't want to read that. There's so much courage and hope within this setting that it's not ever too much. So she, she, it's true and it's hard to read, but it's really, really inspiring. So that's one I would absolutely recommend. There's a few that are coming out very soon. One is that Summer in Berlin by Leisha Cornwall about a young woman who spies for the allies while she's at the Olympic games in Berlin. And that's, it's terrifying. It, you don't breathe the whole time you read it. And it is so phenomenally good. And then back in time a little bit, a dress of violet taffeta by Tessa Arlen is about one of the women, Lady Duff Gordon, who was really the woman who invented fashion as we know it, a fashion with runways and um, seasons and things like that. And she was actually a single mother at the turn of the century. She ended up marrying another man. She ended up on the Titanic. So hers is a story that, that touches all of these interesting places in history, but she's so plucky and spunky. You just, you want to go wherever she does. They all sound fabulous. <laughs> This is one also that I always like to ask people because it's so, so interesting to hear the answers. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if you were having your creative career over again, if you were starting it out, is there anything that you would change as you look back and are older and wiser? One thing I just wish could be different is that I can't always write exactly what I want because the market doesn't always want what I have on my plate. I do wish that there were just a few more hours in the day so that I could also be writing something that's that I completely want to write, <laughs> to be honest with you. So for example, one of the books that nobody wanted, and you know, all writers, whether they admit it or not, have lots of these books in the drawer. I was working on a book about the legends of Mary Magdalene, and I am so fascinated by biblical historical women. And I, I keep getting told that people are not interested in that. I don't actually believe it, but what I what I do think is that it's not for now, but later I want to get into it. So I just wish if there was ever any time that I could have siphoned, that I would have kept working on the biblical historical fiction women so that I had it ready to go whenever the market's ready. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yes. Someone like Francine Rivers has managed to make a huge career out of that, but I guess it is a slightly more niche market, isn't it? It is. Yes. Yes. Of course, you could always look at self-publishing those. Well, sure. And I have self-published two novels. So yeah, I just need to find that extra time in the day yeah, to, uh, sure. to have these things running concurrently. <laughs> <laughs> so what is next for Erica, the author, over the next 12 months? I have found two 
remarkable women in history whose stories collide in a new and interesting way in a different time period from World War II. And I'm so fired up about it, but I can't talk about it just yet. <laughs> no, I, but is your publisher considering it marketable? I, I haven't formally proposed it yet. So I have to write about three pages or fi- uh, sorry, three chapters or 50 pages with the synopsis to get it going. So right now I'm in the research phase. I've fallen in love. I'm working on my timelines. That's where I am. Great. That sounds wonderful. And does it take you, how long does it take you to write a book once you've got yourself set up with Usually about a year for my Mm. first draft. So, Mm. and then there's a lot of um, research that leads up to it and then ongoing, but usually that first draft is about a year. And uh, once I have a good chunk of the story, so if I get 50 pages in a synopsis, then I know whether it's I'm off to the races or not. You usually can find out within that time if what you're trying to make work is going to work or not. Yeah, yeah. Sounds sounds, um, amazing. You do a lot of work before you even really get the tick from the publisher. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm, mm. Now, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I do. I'm mostly online on Facebook and Instagram. So Instagram, it's Author, E-R-O-B-U-C-K. And Facebook, it's just Erica Roebuck. I have an author page there. And when I'm in person or I have virtual events, I post those on my websites, on my social media accounts. I just wrapped up an in-person book tour, which is obviously the first time I've been able to do that in years. And it was such a joy to be able to interact with readers in person again and booksellers. It was very special, something I will not take for granted ever again. That's wonderful, Erica. Look, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic talking. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, a bit of a change of pace, an outstanding non-fiction book. New York Times best-selling historian and novelist Catherine Howe is on the show. She's the co-author of The Vanderbilts, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, one of The Washington Post's most notable works of non-fiction picks for 2021. She co-authored this work with Anderson Cooper, a Vanderbilt grandson, and she talks about how the project came together and her own best-selling fiction. That's on The Joys of Binge Reading next week. That's it for now. Happy reading and see you next time.